95, which begins with thanksgiving and then ends with one of the most uh, somber warnings. Um, much like if you've ever had a Thanksgiving where you're, you're having a good time, everything's going according to plan, and then you find out you know, from a phone call that something tragic has happened, or maybe one of the food items um, got overcooked, or just something ruins it. You have this wonderful, beautiful psalm that begins with so much joy and exuberance, and then it ends in almost this, this bitter aftertaste. And I wanted to bring it to our attention um, both to uh, because it's the Word of God and deserves our attention, but because it can be very much that way. Uh, I, I was tempted, actually, just to preach the first half of this psalm because it's, it's joy, it's singing, it's happiness, it's thankful. And, uh, and I thought, man, it's sort of a downer that he ends on this wrath and a warning. But, you know, we need both. If we really want to be thankful, we need both. And the reality is, and I say this, Often, I don't want to make it a downer for anyone, but we have no idea whether this is going to be the best Thanksgiving or Christmas time you've ever had or the worst. It could look good now, be absolutely horrible in a week. But on the flip side, it could be absolutely dismal right now. The Lord could turn it around. So the Lord um, knows how to bless both times. So we're going we're gonna to go into Psalm 95 just from a, a very quick devotional anger and let that prompt our hearts to give thanks to the Lord in just a moment. So let me read it for you first, and then and we'll just, you know, just run through it real fast and encourage and challenge our hearts tonight. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to Yahweh. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, you probably sensed a little bit of the shift of tone there when you're essentially talking about a party in, uh, in the first few verses, and then you come to the stark contrast of talking about the things that the Lord hates. So we'll talk about that in a second. But first of all, I want you to be struck by the exuberance of worshiping God. The words sing and shout there and making a joyful noise, these are all words that express just complete exuberance, enthusiasm, gusto. There's even uh, some places in, uh, in uh, earlier books of the Bible where that joyful noise is also translated as a war cry, a war shout. So it's, it's, it, it has something to say just about 
excitement about what God is about to do or is doing. Now, I hate to use parenting analogies all the time, but it's the holiday seasons, and even if you don't have kids, you're likely to be around kids, so I feel like I can use those analogies, and you'll get it. Um, But if you've ever been around kids, and this happens, of course, a lot at Christmas time on uh, Christmas morning, when they're just so happy and excited that they're screaming. Actually, we get it a lot on Sunday night. And on the one hand, you're like, please stop screaming because it's so shrill. But on the other hand, what are they doing? They're having the time of their life. You know, they're, they're playing with their friends. They are safe. They're happy. And so they're letting it out. And, and that's sort of the idea here. It's at least the attitude, the energy behind the words of singing and making a joyful noise and, and shouting in his presence. It is like that enthusiasm of children who can't help but express, you know, vocally that they are excited. And babies do this. I mean, that's one of the first things babies do to show their excitement or enthusiasm. They start to learn to do that, that, that happy, laughing, crying, shrill, loud sound. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about here. It's an attitude of thankfulness that makes us explode with joyful noises. Um, but to be fair, and this is to temper the excitement of children, of course, the psalmist is saying that that like uh, raw energy needs to be channeled into songs of praise. So, of course, on Sunday morning, we don't come. And even if you're excited about the Lord, we don't encourage you to just make screaming, shouting noises. Uh, even the kids, we don't necessarily want them to do that. We understand it. But uh, obviously, we don't just uh, say, hey, everyone, however you want to yell to the Lord, go for it. No, and it's because here there needs to be the marriage of our excitement with theology. Like a, a song in the Psalms is, is, is music, and it's talking about God. So it's not enough, and plenty of like pagan cults and religions, you, just, you do just scream and shout and make noises. But the psalmist is saying we need to make songs. And songs necessarily mean we are talking words. Well, what kind of words? Words that speak to the glory and the beauty and the wonder of God. So we can't just have a cacophonous sound. You need a symphony of sounds, sounds that come together because we are worshiping the beauty of God. But I will say this, what kids do do when they are just letting it loose like that is they don't care about what other people think when they're doing that, clearly. They're unashamed. You know, they're, they're yelling and screaming down the halls and, and they don't know, you know who's trying to sleep or who it might bother. They're just excited. In that sense, we want to gather that kind of energy, um, that kind of attitude in our hearts when we come before the Lord is just exactly that uh, gusto and excitement and exuberance and also that lack of self-consciousness, that lack of wondering what other people will think and concern about whether what other people uh, are doing little kids they don't have that kind of shame or embarrassment to be loud and obnoxious when they're happy and excited now yes god doesn't want our you know chaos but he does want us to worship genuinely unfettered by self-consciousness self-awareness and so here we have a beautiful picture the psalmist is saying of coming to worship with that kind of you're just so excited to worship the lord you don't you don't care um, and I know many people joke about those who can't sing 
you know, they're making a joyful noise to the Lord. But it's true. I mean, it's not talking about you got to be the better, best singer. You just have to be genuine. You just have to mean it from the heart. You just have to not care so much about what other people might say and think and, and care just what the Lord thinks, just as a child does when they're excited and overjoyed. Now, of course, what matters is what is making us excited. You know, a kid being excited over getting their uh, much longed for toy under the Christmas tree is understandable. You get a promotion at work and um, you, you want to, you know, call your friends and tell them how excited you are. You know, that's another reason to be excited. But what does the psalmist say is prompting his joy and his singing? Well, it's God's sovereignty. It's God's power. We see that in verse 3 through 4. <clears throat> Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. What sparks this enthusiasm is that he is recognizing that God is something so much bigger and so much more powerful than can be contained. Yahweh, which in your Bibles, you don't see that word Yahweh, but every time you see the capital L-O-R-D, it's not a title, like Lord is a title, it's a name. And, and, and L-O-R-D there capitalized refers to what we think is the pronunciation of God's name, Yahweh, which is a, a, a precious personal name by which God wanted to be addressed by the Israelites in his personal covenant relationship to them. And he is saying, the psalmist is saying that this personal God that, that he knows, that he has a covenant relationship with, is a great God, great king above all gods, and he's made everything. Think of it maybe this way. Um, imagine the most respected person that you could think of on this planet, or, or someone that you would feel absolutely intimidated to stand in front of, or even someone you would fear to be in the presence of, you know, imagine that person standing there before you in the kind of, uh, of either fear or respect or honor or reverence or maybe even like, I, 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 I really don't deserve to, to be around this person. The psalmist is saying God is greater than that. There's, you can't even make an analogy. There's no one on this planet that even comes close the power and the authority that God has as king of the universe and the only true God. Don't be thrown off here when he says he's a great king above all gods, as if that is the psalmist saying, you know, there are a lot of little gods and God is the greatest God. Really, the idea is that um, you could almost input the word so-called gods. There is only one God. There are no mini gods. There's not a whole a panoply of gods. There's only one God, so it's really more like saying he is above all the so-called gods that people worship in this world. He's above all of them. It's not trying to justify that there's other gods, only to say that even the things of your imagination, God is above that. Why does God, being a great God and king over everything, spark the kind of joy that you see in verse 1 and 2? Because this is the God that is the rock of our salvation. He says in verse 1, to, to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. He is saying that the God that he actually knows, again, Yahweh, that personal covenant relationship that God has with his people. He's saying the most powerful person 
the most glorious king of everything is someone who is my salvation. He's my personal salvation. He's the rock, not of destruction, but of rescue. You might think everyone in this life is out to get you. From the president all the way down to the barista that messed up your drink, you might think everyone is against you. And you know what? Maybe everyone is. Maybe everyone is out to get you. But if you really trust and believe that God is your king, the whole world could be against you, and you would still have no reason to fear. God is on your side. And again, I know the, the, the kid analogy, I'll bring up another one. Um, but there, there's, there's been many times in the course of like doing kids' ministry where like the kids are playing a game, say on Sunday after church, and they're making up teams. And then, like, a grown-up decides they're going to play. And so immediately, you know, the kid camp's like, hey, you know, I think, uh, I think David. And he's, like, you know, six feet tall, and they're about to play basketball. And what does the team do when the, when the team captain notices that one of the adults is going to play with them? They all start to cheer. Yeah, we got David. We got a grown-up on our team. Well, that's the kind of enthusiasm that the psalmist is saying when he says, sing and, and make a joyful noise. It, it's that kind of joy that the king of the universe is on my side. The king of all kings, he's with me. Why wouldn't I be happy? Why wouldn't I rejoice at that, at that, at that thought? And really, it's not, of course, in that analogy, it's not that the, the psalmist you know, like chose God to be on his team, but really it's the opposite, is that God chose us to be on his team, even though we were not the greatest and not the brightest or the fastest or the richest, or the most famous, that he chose us, that would be exciting, enthralling. Maybe we forget that sometimes. And not only that, though, the psalmist looks out into this extremely grand, orderly, magnificent creation, and he can't help also to see that as a reason, to have this excitement about God. And the words he used, he wants to see the scale of things. You can't you know, God is not a person. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have a, a face. God is spirit. So you, you're, the psalmist wants to you, you to use your imagination just to make more of like an emotional connection to it because it's hard to imagine a, a formless person. So don't see here the talk about hands that we think that God, the Father of all things, has hands. But you are supposed to make the picture so that you can kind of emotionally connect. Like, what kind of being would it be that could heap up the earth and make dry land, that can scoop out and carve out a space for the waters and the oceans to fill in? You're supposed to sense the grandness of God when you look out into our created order. If we look out into the world and we see a big universe around us, billions and billions of stars, we are to see that God has created it. If it's big, God is bigger. If it is grand, God is grander. If it is beautiful, God is more beautiful. If it is wise in how it is all laid out, then God is the wisdom. So as the psalmist looks out, he sees so many evidences of God's power and wisdom and beauty and might from waterfalls and, and sunsets to the towering mountains to the 
the great uh, sequoia trees to the deepest creatures of the ocean, to the farthest galaxies, black holes, to our beautiful sun and moon. He sees it all and says, I, I have to sing or shout or something. I, I'm seeing something so amazing. It's making, it's eliciting emotions in me. Maybe you're not a singer. Maybe you're just a gasper. Or maybe you're just a, you know, staying in silence. But it needs to evoke some kind of response when you look out into the creation. Not only that, but human beings are made in the image of God. John Piper says there's seven billion, this is an old <laughs> sermon, but now eight billion. There's eight billion like reflections of who God is walking around on this planet. We are so intended to know the glory of God in the people that are on this planet, made in his image. When people do amazing things, it should turn our hearts towards God, if there's anything that people are doing that isn't the remotest bit a reflection of who God is, we can be thankful for them being made in the image of God. We can understand that each person, when something happens to them, good or bad, that we are to respond as image bearers of God, that another image bearer of God has been wounded or hurt. We can also be thankful and rejoice when something good happens to someone that is made in the image of God. It's okay to have a little bit of childlike wonder at the glory of God in creation and the glory of God in humanity. We don't have to be constantly jaded or cynical, constantly looking at how bad everything is. We need to be thankful. Because the glimmers of God's grace you see in the world, I, I had originally written here the smallest glimmers we need to be thankful for. But the psalmist is saying there's no small when it comes to what God does. Everything is glorious and big. I appreciate, again, what John Piper says about us and our relationship with the creation and everything out there. And there's a little bit of humility here, but also a little bit of encouragement. He says, you don't know everything. There are billions of things you don't know, but you are never at a loss to know something important about everything because you know that everything exists for the glory of God. You know something about everything. And this is one of the most important things you can know about anything. So this world, you're supposed to look at it and say, I don't know everything about quantum physics. I've been bringing that up lately. I, I don't know everything about how even, you know, like um, woodworking or, or you pick any subject. I don't know a lot of things about a lot of things. But what I do know about everything is that it is intended to show the glory of God. And that's something very hopeful. That's something that should not just be, huh, that's a neat thought, but something that should elicit thankful praise, a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, having said that, when I just said we shouldn't be constantly jaded or cynical or looking how bad it, everything is, the psalmist does say there is a seriousness to worship. There's a seriousness to thanksgiving as well. He says, oh, come, let us kneel, or let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Things obviously slow down. They become a little bit more somber. 
entering into God's presence, there's almost like a ridiculous joy. It's like a party in verses 1 and 2 and 3. But here the psalmist says, now come and kneel and bow down and worship. And I just have this funny image. There, there is supposed to be like a transition here because I was I'm trying to imagine people kneeling on the ground and, and, and shouting and, and having joy and you know, singing songs while they're prostrate on the floor. Well, no, obviously these are not happening at the same time. You know, the joyful noise and the, and the singing and the coming into his presence, there's something that happens that causes you to go from that moment to this moment where you're now on your knees, face to the ground. You're not, you know, laughing and, 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 and having the party with your face on the floor. No, something has happened there's another element of thankful worship that has been added here, and it's the recognition of sin. For all the glory and beauty there is out there that we must acknowledge and be excited about, you'd be a fool to look out into the world and not see a huge problem, sin. You'd be short-sighted if you came to worship the Lord, you didn't look in your own heart and see a problem, sin. The psalmist didn't take for granted that for God to welcome his sheep into his pasture, as he's talking about here, God needs to be merciful. And we need to be humble. God cannot be your God. You cannot be his sheep and his people without the humility of understanding that you are a sinner that must be thankful for his grace. So that's why he comes to transition to a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. This it refers to a story in Exodus 17 where, if you remember, the Israelites, they had just escaped from the, the shackles of Egypt and the Pharaoh by Moses being the instrument of God, miraculously, um, God miraculously using him to bring these plagues upon Egypt. And finally, the people are freed, all right? They, they cross the uh, Red Sea, it parts for them, all of that, you know, the, the movie stuff. But once they get to wandering in the wilderness a little bit, they start to turn towards grumbling and complaining because it's a wilderness. They're lacking food and water. And all of a sudden, they grumble and complain, Moses, you let us out here to die. It would have been better if we were back in Egypt. And to that, Moses throws up his hands and he, he says, what, you know, God, tell me what to do. They're about to lynch me over here. And God says that they're stubborn, but that he's going to provide for them water. And he does. But Moses ends up calling this place Meribah, which means like bitter, because their hearts were bitter towards the Lord. What was the heart of their sin? What is it that is causing the, the somberness in this psalm? Well, he identifies it. He says, do not harden your heart, as at Meribah, as on the day at Mass in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. The idea of putting, being put to the test and, and, and to the proof is, is almost like they dared to question the questioner. They, they dared to, it would be like you're taking a test and you are, you are questioning the one who wrote the test. Like it, it, 
Of course they know the answer to it. Why would you question that they have it wrong? Why would you ever put God in a position to, to seem as if he has made a mistake? Who are they? They're a bunch of, a bunch of faithless Israelites. The heart of sin is to test God even though he has proven himself already. They had seen his work. They had seen ten plagues. They had seen the Red Sea part. They would seen miracles upon miracles. And yet, days later, you know, maybe, maybe not even weeks, but like days later, here they are with such grumbling and complaining in their hearts that they had wished they were in a position before they knew Yahweh was their salvation. It's a shocking statement for them, to say, for them to say after seeing all that they did. You know, maybe life was better when we were slaves slinging bricks for the Pharaoh. It's a tragic statement to make, and obviously we can judge that, and certainly the Lord did. He, he judged them for 40 years. Those 40 years, I load that generation because they're a people who have gone astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And God swore, they shall not enter my rest, meaning the promised land. So that generation, they were not allowed to enter into the land that God had promised. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were not allowed to enter it because of the sin in their heart. This is why Thanksgiving is important. This warning here, in a sense, is a warning to not forget what God has done. Because by implication, if we acknowledge His work, if we remember His work, we're not going to put God to the test. If we look back and see the ways that God has been faithful and say, yeah, He did rescue us from the hands of Egypt. He did do miraculous wonders. Why are we being so whiny and complaining? Why are we acting so entitled and bitter? Why are we being so ungrateful to the Lord? Ah, the antidote to their hard hearts at Meribah is if someone would have just said, hey guys, let's be thankful. Let's remember what the Lord had done. Did you guys forget already? The plagues? Remember the frogs? Remember the darkness? Remember the fiery hail? Remember when all the firstborn of Egypt died? Have you no fear of God? Have you no joy in your hearts that he rescued you? And if someone perhaps was brave enough to say such a thing, they all would have said, yeah, you're right. I can't believe I forgot that. They started to be thankful instead of bitter and complaining. Perhaps there would have been no loathing and no judgment. And so the burden is on us tonight. I don't want to be as those who harden their hearts. The solution is thanksgiving, to remind ourselves of what God has done and who he is through what he has done. And of course, the greatest work of all, even if this has just been the absolute worst year of your life, and maybe for some of you it was, God has done the greatest work and given us the greatest gift of all in the gospel. No matter what has happened this week, it does not change this fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for sinners. And by faith, you can exchange your, 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 your unrighteous, wicked, sinful life for his perfect, righteous, just life. If you turn away from your sin, and if you run to cross. And that cannot be taken away. 
That's something that you can always be thankful for, no matter what has happened. So probably, I'm willing to bet how many things we can be grateful for that God has done. And so as we come into a time of sharing thanksgiving, let us not harden our hearts. Let us remember instead with joyful exuberance and excitement what God has done for us. Let me pray, and then we'll have a time to offer thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church and for the congregation, Lord, of people who have put their faith and trust in you. It's not been an easy year, I know, for many. In some ways, it has cost more to to call ourselves Christians, to be committed to the work of the gospel and the body of Christ. And so for all who have who have been faithful to that, I am so thankful. Lord, I'm thankful even for the hardships that have come this past year because they have driven us to our knees. Maybe we needed a moment to worship and bow down and kneel before Yahweh, our maker, and just remember we are just sheep in your pastures. So Lord, bring to mind the ways you've been faithfulness. Call us to a humility of heart and say, no, Lord, but you have been good to me. And let that spread amongst our people so that we would avoid being a thankless, um, ungrateful people that are going to forget you a day from now. So please help us to avoid that trap by, by remembering all of your goodness and kindness and grace towards us, which were secured for us in Christ when he died for us. So thank you, Lord, ultimately for the gift of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.